Hello, my name is Jordan Marr. I'm a farmer in BC's North Okanagan, and this is Farming in British Columbia, a podcast whose title gets to the point and whose intro music sends its regrets. This episode, a conversation with Emily Huckster, a beekeeper based in Armstrong. Her apiary is called Wild Antho, where Emily, her partner Shane, and also many bees produce honey as well as offer a variety of apiary services that you'll hear about later. What you're about to listen to is just part of my conversation with Emily, which was pretty long. In this part, Emily compares honey production on the prairies with the Okanagan, why the economics of beekeeping are probably not what you've assumed, and why 50% of a jar of 100% Canadian honey may actually be from Singapore. I hope you enjoy this, and I will probably talk to you again at the end. Emily Huckster, thank you so much for joining me for this podcast interview. I think we better start at the origin. So this is going to be a conversation about beekeeping. You're a beekeeper. I sure am. Okay, how did this all start for you? So I guess the story that goes through our family, which is always kind of funny, is my parents both had career type jobs. And when they were eight months pregnant, left Calgary and moved to Grand Forks and bought a bee farm. And so I was born on a bee farm to two beekeepers who had never really beekeeped before. Mm -hmm. And I apparently was stung nursing at two weeks old on my mom's tit. And that's where it began. And I vowed my whole childhood I would never beekeep. It was horrible growing up on a bee farm. I always said, you know, we lived in a small town and not a big city. Mm. And we spent lots of weekends out in bee yards and traveling through the hills to bee sites. And I was like, never, ever. And so it motivated me to go to school. And I went to school and uh, got a few degrees along the way and was enticed by government and worked for government for 15 years and then realized that that isn't oh you were away from it for a while then. i was yeah so wait but i kept bees as a backyard beekeeper like i had a few hives in my backyard nearly always and went home many summers and worked through university on the farm but definitely was like did not envision it as a career so really, really quickly, I have to, I have a follow-up question. So when you said like, ah, growing up, I hated it, it was so boring. What you described was mostly just the experience of almost any farm kid. Like it was just boring. But was there anything specific, like putting aside um, stings on the tit, like yeah. which you can't remember anyway, but like was there anything more specific about being in a beekeeping family that made you kind of decide you were never going to do it? At the dinner table, it was always bee talk all the time. There was like, and so I just remember that always being like, oh, wow, there's just so much bee conversation all the time in my life. It, there was no escaping it. But it's really, it's it's hard for me to answer that question now because now I look back at these memories and I vi- envision them with this like romantic view of like, oh, it was like we had these wonderful family dinners with talking about bees. and But I remember the feelings at the time of not feeling that way and being like, oh farming is so frustrating. Do do you have siblings? I do. I have one younger brother who ironically left a like highfalutin banking career to also be a beekeeper. Your brother's a beekeeper as well. Where? Where? In Grand Forks. Wow, cool. Yeah. And what was the specific focus or nature of your parents' beekeeping commercial work? Like what what was was it 
was it honey honey sales or what were they doing? So I think that's a that's a real misconception of most beekeepers in BC at least. Very few beekeepers make their living from just selling honey. It's mm-hmm. always producing stock or selling bees. They started as honey producers and they're very in the infancy, but quickly realized that you have to diversify. Like all things in farming, I think you have to have more than one income stream to make it work. And so they started selling packages first, which is just like a box of bees essentially. Mm-hmm. And then um, and they started doing pollination services. And then uh, my mom became really enamored with breeding bees. And so my mom kind of started actually her own business. So my dad kept doing pollination and bee, you know, producing bulk bees. And my mom started breeding queen bees. And so she had her own operation, which was called Kettle Valley Queens. And my dad had Terry's Honey Farm. And so they each had their own stream. How many how many beekeepers can be breeders and can be selling populations? Like, where are all the customers coming from? And that's the crazy thing is, so there is this huge movement in the prairies from many beekeepers out there to open the... So the Canadian border is closed to the import of a lot of bees from... Um, from uh, bees on comb, I should say. Mm-hmm. So like not packaged bees, but bees that are on uh, comb. So like mm-hmm. a n- nucleus colony, we would call it. And the border is closed to that. And there is this huge push by parts of the industry to open the doors and let all of this in because there is not enough. We are desperate for more people to raise queens in Canada, to produce stock in Canada. We are totally under... To fill the demand, you to mean? To fill the demand. Right. The demand completely outstrips the supply. Okay. And so this is good for you. Yeah. Great for me. And like great for any new beekeeper. There is just so, it's very easy to unload your product. That's good. Without trying. Why is it unrealistic for beekeepers to like build a a commercial business around honey sales? So you can build a commercial business around honey sales in the prairies because they have the forage that will allow you to get enough honey per hive to make it worthwhile to do that. Yeah. But in BC, we just don't have the forage here to be able to to produce hundreds and hundreds of pounds from every beehive. And so, but what we do have is we have a longer season. And so that longer season allows us to get way more bees uh, and, and produce a lot of bees early, which yeah. is what the prairies need. They need a lot of bees. They lose a lot of bees in the winter because of their harsher winters. Yeah. And so it just isn't viable. There just is not enough forage land. Okay. Can you give me, can we go into that a little? Like, yeah. can you just give me two parallel examples? One on the prairies, like of a single hive. So if my goal yep. is I want as much honey as possible to sell, how is the hive situated for forage on the prairies versus give me an example of some geography around here and why that forage would be more limited. Yeah, for sure. So in the prairies, they probably have yards of 40 hives and each of those 40 hives are sitting in a canola is primarily their honey Mm -hmm. there. And so they'll be sitting in, you know, acres and acres, hundreds of acres of canola, Mm -hmm. like kilometers of acres of canola surround these beehives. And essentially just every kilometer and a half, there'll be another 40 beehives. And those beehives will produce 200, you know, I think a poor year for them is 170 pounds per hive and and good years are over 200 pounds Mm -hmm. a hive, maybe even more. That's an average, you know, some colonies will produce 300 plus and some will not even reach the 150 mark so um that so as a hive average you know around 200 pounds per hive here in bc 
it again, and it's operation specific, we don't take all of the honey from our hives. So we definitely are missing probably 60 pounds in potential out of every one of our hives. We, you or we, you and your fellow beekeepers? Oh, sorry. Uh, we, myself. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's one reason it's less. That's one reason it's less. But even within BC, I would say a good pound average is like 100 100 pounds okay. and i know a very good honey producer and he'll maybe get 150 or 160 so how okay but those same number of hives or the one hive compared to those acres and acres of canola fields what's happening here that limits the bees from foraging like can you just describe that a little bit like yeah make up an example where that hive is situated and why why the forage potential is more limited for sure so around in in bc essentially mostly we're foraging on alfalfa and then surrounding outlands from the alfalfa. So alfalfa gets cut fairly frequently here. And, and as farmers become more and more efficient, they um, need to cut more often or they cut more often. And mm -hmm. so the flower time is less and less. So that really reduces the uh, honey potential for the for the bees in that particular zone. And then as well, we just have such a pretty short flowering season. It gets hot here and dry and things just stop flowering. So yeah. we have a very short window in June where there's a lot of natural, um, you know, your Saskatoons, your chokecherry, your snowberry um, that are flowering that are all great honey producers, but it's like a two week window. Right. Okay. And so, so it's in the context of, I, I think I, I assume that it helps to like contrast against like a wild honeybee, right. They're not going to have the kind of output we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Right. You're yeah. talking so like what, what, what our commercial honeybees or, or domesticated honeybees are really relying on is like the intensification of agriculture and the, the pollen coming from our agriculture. Yes. And so you just can't beat what's happening in a giant canola field on the, on the, on the prairies. Yes. But what about the beekeepers that are going to like go hard on moving their bees to keep the pollination going? Can we talk about that part of the industry? You know, like, so so pollination activity, right? Because yeah. we live in a region with massive orchard tree fruit production that needs the pollination. So is that like, can we talk, can we talk about that part of the business? Yeah, for sure. And, and so... As well, I should. I just want to quickly say that there are a lot of beekeepers, or and there are more and more beekeepers in southern BC who move their bees to Alberta for honey, or move their bees to northern BC for honey production as well. So that is definitely, you know, there is some movement for honey within BC as well, but that's not not the only the only way. Um, and then for pollination, there is a lot of migration of bees for pollination, both from within the valley to different points within the valley and from out of province into province. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of that is that people bring them in and overwinter them here and then do pollination and then move them back to their home province for honey production. Mm -hmm. Some of it is that they just move them in for pollination and then they move them back out. Um, and then here within the valley, some of us participate in pollination and some do not just because there are so many other pieces to pollination that that are um, can be detrimental to bees okay well let's talk about that a little bit right mm -hmm. so but so i guess starting with just the basic i guess economics of it so maybe we'll start with what motivates an orchard pick pick a type of tree fruit that's most relevant and what what motivates that producer of that tree fruit to bring bees into their orchard you know it's a good question so cherries and apples are the primary uh orchardists who request to have bees come yeah. in and 
And I think that they do it out because, you know, if they don't, their neighbor's not going to like them, essentially. You know, if their neighbor's also a grower. And, and of course, they get more crop if they have bees in there. What do you mean? What, what's the connection to the neighbor? So, so if the neighbor brings in bees, but you don't have bees. Oh, then you're piggybacking. Then you're, you're welching You're stealing them. his bees. Right, so there's like a self-reinforcing your... <laughs> yeah. grower social pressure to like yes. also do it. Okay. To make sure that you bring your bees in. Yeah. But ironically, most growers bring in the minimum or less than the minimum number of bees per acre uh, that they can bring in. Minus the big, the big producers, like, you know, the jealous fruits of the world are understanding the bee populations you need to truly uh, pollinate an orchard. Yeah. But a, a lot of orchards, you know, are 10 acres and we, we bring in two or three hives and, and that's not going to pollinate a 10 acre orchard well enough. What should it be? You know, I I think different. There are different people say different things, but I think it's about four or five hives an acre, is okay. is the normal. Oh, okay. So quite could be quite a difference between what it should be to to really maximize pollination. Yes. And what growers are are paying for. Yeah, and what they can afford. You know, I think that the other problem is is that growers don't get a lot for their fruit at the end of the day. Yeah. And so. Well, particularly with apples in this valley right yeah. now, it's oh, terrible. It's so terrible. And so they they just can't afford to have the bee population that they they need within the orchard. And and you probably can't get down to specifics because it probably changes. But what does it cost a grower to put a hive in an, on in an orchard or five hives or whatever? Can you give us an idea? Yeah. So the, essentially pollination costs this year ranged between $120 a hive to $150 a hive. But for a duration of how long? For a duration of the bloom, okay. which will be anywhere from two to four weeks, okay. depending on the year, yeah. um, how warm the season or cold the season is. But to give you an idea, at most like blueberry and raspberry pollination well blueberry specifically i think they're getting closer to 200 or 225 and almonds get that in american dollars and so you know this valley pays the absolute lowest pollination prices out there but they're probably also getting paid the lowest for their fruit too right so you know okay and so what describe the type of commercial beekeeper that is really like most engaged with this part of the beekeeping economy? So there are a few. I mean, there's a, there's some onesie twosies out there who do the smaller orchards, which is f fabulous. And, and we also do some smaller orchards as well. Yeah. And um, I, I like the connection with the, the smaller growers. And then but on a whole, it is big beekeepers from Alberta primarily who come in and so like they're rolling in with a semi truck yeah at the start of the season or two semi trucks sure and yeah. so what's a semi truck hold uh, a semi truck will hold it depends if they're coming in as singles and then putting a second box on yeah. or as doubles if they're coming in as doubles it can probably hold 400 to 450 hives okay wow. and so they've got arrangements with however many orchards at a given time mm -hmm. and they roll in and then their hope and plan is to be is to do pollination from the earliest blooming crop, which would in this valley would be cherries, will be the first thing that will, they'll go into, and then right to the end, which, which would, would be, be apples. Apples, right. yeah. Okay, at the end, yeah. And and the other way that it works is they are connected with a local beekeeper. So there are some local beekeepers who are essentially brokers, and so these semi trucks come in, dump in big yards, and then the local beekeeper distributes those hives and takes a cut. Yeah. Of the pollination fee, distributes them out into the orchards and then uh -huh. brings them back. And then that semi comes back and takes them home. OK. And you've said like it's not it, this valley offers, say, lower rates for the hives than elsewhere, mm -hmm. other regions. 
So is that the main reason someone like you is ambivalent about that part of the business and participating in it? Like would, would, would enough money change your mind or, cause, it, or what is it? What is it that makes you ambivalent about participating in, in, in that form of beekeeping? So some, some of it is that I feel like it is hard for us to cover our costs. Like our return on investment in pollination is pretty low. The margins are low for mm-hmm. pollination. The other, I have a young family and pollination requires all nights. It's like you start picking up bees at seven o'clock at night and you often don't finish till four or five in the morning. It's a, it's all night work, which is well. Can you can you not okay? Really can, can we stop there? Like, can you but go? How frequently? Like, what's happening that that's the reality? Yeah. So, so it'll be like two weeks or more. So because essentially, like, even within the Armstrong area, you know, if you're up at the north end of the the Armstrong area, you're essentially a week or maybe even two weeks behind. A week for sure behind Central Armstrong, which yeah. is then a, probably a week behind Southern Armstrong. And this sure. is just a very small little This is just if the, you're going to stay in your yeah. one little part of the valley. To exactly. say nothing of like starting Vernon down in the Suyu is like two, or, or 150 yeah. kilometers away. Exactly. Yeah. And so the and so inevitably you're probably putting hives into orchards over three weeks or more. Yeah. And then by the time you finish putting hives in, they're coming out of the first orchards they went and into. And bouncing to the next. And going. To a, to either a to the new next crop. microclimate, yeah. yeah, or a new crop, okay. yeah, or moving over, like you know, to the apples from if somebody only has cherries, then it'll move. And to of apples. course, this they have to be moved when they're not active. So yeah. this is all at it's night. all night work. So it can be like up to six weeks of just night, night. after night moving yeah. bees. So that's not super enticing to me. Yeah, and some people thrive on that for sure, and like love that adrenaline rush of of doing it. Um, so that's one part, and then the other part is that there's often spray damage and there is a lot of spray damage that happens and um for us our our big money making part is having bees and selling bees mm-hmm. and so if i get a lot of spray damage and then don't have bees anymore i it's a real loss for right, us, right a huge loss so um that that's a real deterrent for us and and when you the bees aren't in your control and you know they're in an environment where there is a lot of spray or has been a lot of spray applied it's very hard to to feel okay about what's going on with the bees. So is it m- more correct to say that the spray damage that happens and the harm to the bees that happens is just de facto a reality of doing that work? Or is it more correct to say that typically there are agreements with the orchardists meant to prevent that from happening, but then it comes down to whether those agreements are being followed? Yeah, it's mostly whether the agreements are being followed. We set out a contract that that states what can happen while our bees are in the orchard. But orchardists also have to 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 make a profit and need to have fruit on the trees. And so, you know, if a, a heavy rain happens or if a heavy dew happens, they need to respray or, you know, th- and it they're happens. under they're under really tight time Too crunches to tight. do so. It's what as yeah. an aside, it's like, you know, it's what's really sticky and awkward, I think, about pesticide use mm-hmm. is that, you know, when used as prescribed. They're really like that really reduces the risk to the environment and to humans and everyone else. The problem is it's farming. Like there are so many examples where you just you're faced, I imagine, with really tough choices about like, well, I know it's a bit too windy, but I'm so desperate to get this spray on. Or I know I have this agreement with Emily and the timing's not right, but I'm so desperate to get this spray on. And what or do you the do? farm is so large they can't do it all overnight. Yeah. And so or- then it drifts into the daytime mm-hmm. and affects them. And I think as well. There's more and more research showing, 
And so almonds get a lot of research, which is why I always keep coming back to almonds, mm-hmm. because millions of beehives literally move into almonds every February, essentially, mm-hmm. from all across the states, like from as far as Florida to California. They drive them, which is crazy. But um, and so and they're finding that like fungicides shouldn't have a big effect on bees. That should be fine to be applied on trees. And they do it here in the cherries as well. And. But they're finding more and more that there actually are long-term effects of some of these fungicides mm-hmm. on the bees' health. And so a lot of it is that we're all just learning how detrimental that these are, even though that the, you know, at the face value, it doesn't look like the fungicide is going to hurt the bee, mm-hmm. isn't shown to hurt the bee. But over its long term, it seems to decrease the bee's ability to forage. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, you know, we're all learning as we go and and. And I think us as beekeepers notice that. They go into the orchards, they come out, they're just never as strong. Mm. It's never quite the same colony. Right. So I, I can kind of infer that if if you are a large, you know, apiarist and so you've got the semi-trucks full, like you've you've gained economies of scale where you, at least on an economic sense, you can make it work and you can deal with the losses. But I can understand why you're more reluctant and why it would probably take a lot, have to be a lot more lucrative before you would start. Well, and the semi-trucks are coming from Alberta. Yeah. So it's winter there. Yeah. And so their gain is that their bees are, even though they may experience some um, setback from whatever is happening in the orchard, they're actually getting a huge gain because they're getting fresh pollen that they wouldn't be getting at home. Mm-hmm. And they're getting uh, brood rearing. So in other words, more bees being Generation. made within the hive. Yeah. Uh, that they wouldn't be getting at home. So they would get a stronger colony regardless, you know, unless compared, it's really Compared heavy. to being stuck yeah. in winter over in Grand Forks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or or whatever, Lethbridge or wherever. So, but for us here, we can have the benefits of the warm climate without our bees being in the orchards. And so it actually is more beneficial to not be in the orchards often. Right. So... We're going to get further and further away from the production of honey. So while we're still sort of kind of talking about it, I just want to stop and go on a little tangent, which is like, can we talk about honey for a little bit? Like, yeah, it's fun. It's sticky. Great. What I mean, what I'll just start with a basic, like just a general question. Like what, 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 what forage leads to your favorite honey? Yeah. So, and that, you know, Fireweed, I think. So I should just say fireweed. Fireweed is a beautiful honey, and I really like it because it's um, a monofloral honey. It essentially, when you put your bees up there, that's really the only honey you get up there. And I feel like it's one of the like most natural honeys that you can get. Mm-hmm. I do know the, there is spraying practices happening in forestry, but we hope that we're far enough removed from those that, that it doesn't impact our honey at all. So do you get your some of your hives up into fireweed we do. country? Yeah, and we get good returns. Like we can we can rival the prairies in fireweed some years. The last this past year and 2 years ago we probably competed with prairie honey output uh per hive. Now getting them up there is an incredible amount of work and fencing them and keeping them bare bear proof up there is really hard so and I think part of the reason why I like fireweed is because it is kind of fun you know you get to like drive them up into the mountains and you build all these crazy structures to try and keep the bears out and then you get to go back and visit and every time you come around the corner you're like are the hives still standing or have they been munched and they and then if they're still standing you're like woohoo and so it's really exciting so I mean uh, now (laughs) now, makes it tasty to me I guess (laughs) (laughs) now a tangent from a tangent then so whether you're talking about 
like hives being that ice like remote yeah. or just somewhere you're placing them elsewhere like what about um do you have any stories of human tampering whether it's vandalism or otherwise yeah so we thankfully have been really lucky to not have had any human tampering thus far with mm. our hives neighboring beekeepers have had hives stolen um in the orchards there's a lot of stealing of hives it, that's very common we have not experienced any of that but it definitely happens and i feel like it's got to be other beekeepers because i don't know who in their right mind would pick up a hive at night yeah without having some sort of heavy protection on because bees are horrible at night <laughs> So if fireweed is the best honey in your opinion, mm -hmm. what what is the what are what are Canadians shopping at the grocery store getting in terms of what what forage is is feeding that is supplying that honey? Honey at the grocery store only needs to be 50% Canadian to be 100% pure Canadian honey. Labeling is very deceptive. So yeah. what you're buying at the grocery store, I don't know. It, you'll probably have a lot of foreign honey in it because foreign honey is very cheap. And it, a lot of it may not even be honey. So I, I see a package that says 100% Canadian honey and f up to 50% of it legally can be from who knows where in the world. Yeah. A lot of it comes from Singapore. China was banned as an exporter or it was, uh, is not allowed to, we are not allowed to import Chinese honey due to the chemical composition. And so Singapore became a huge uh, port of import, which... Singapore is a full city. I don't understand how they have so much honey. Uh, oh, that shows up like there. that dodgy. Like, where yes. is it? Could it be coming? Oh. <laughs> All right. The so, back door has opened and the honey still comes through. So if, it comes from, but it also comes from, you know, legitimate Chile and Argentina and many other places. How much faith or trust can I have that at the very least it is actually 100% honey? Do you know um, anything? Like, is it, I'm talking about adulteration. Yeah, adulteration. Yeah. So, there aren't a lot of statistics on Canadian adulteration. In the States, it's been very high adulteration rates up until very recently. There is a real push by beekeepers to start to build technologies to validate honey and mm. and uh, NMR. Honey. Nuclear magnetic resonance? Yes. Yeah, okay. And so they use that to... Um, essentially like map out the sugars in the honey and then they can tell which, you know, what the source is. And so now NMR along with mass spectrometry is the other way and they're using them in combination to try and build a database of what Canadian honey looks like so that they can then test or North American honey looks like so they can then test it and say, yes, this is truly Canadian honey or not. Right. But if you are lucky enough to get 100% Canadian honey, you're probably getting canola honey is what you're getting. Okay. Um, most, I would say 90% of the honey on the store shelves is canola honey from the prairies. And I have to imagine someone like you, like really, like the flavor differential among honeys produced from these different forages must be massive. Oh, it is. I'm, it's huge. And yeah. it's really interesting because we often let people taste our honey before they, and we'll, especially at this time of year, we'll have all of our different batches of honey mm. and people are like, wow, they taste so different. And, you know, you don't, it's. It's like all of these things, unless you like taste them side by side, it, it's hard to know that there is a difference, but they do taste very different. Okay. So if I'm a consumer of meat, if I'm thinking about certain values that are important to me, I'm probably thinking about the animal welfare of the animals and how they're being treated. And I might want to try and control for that. I might be thinking about their feed, right? So maybe I'm someone who really wants grass-fed meat for these reasons or whatever. Could you, could you run down a bit of a parallel, like what it, a really discerning conscientious honey consumer, what questions are they going to be asking? So 
you know, they can they can ask where the where the bees have foraged for sure. Um, they and like site site locations is always good to know. Uh, you know, beekeepers don't know exactly where they forage. Bees fly and they fly way farther than you think they're going to fly, which is always so mind blowing to me. But um I don't know why sometimes they just like skip over fields and decide to go much farther. And we know this because we put pollen traps on hives and the pollen is clearly not from anything nearby. Mm -hmm. And so it's, yeah, that's how we can tell that they're definitely foraging at, at a, at a farther distance. But so you can definitely ask them about, yeah, where sites are. If you open up a jar of honey and it has like a white kind of foamy top on it, mm -hmm. you know, that's probably pretty natural, pretty raw honey. Mm -hmm. um, that tends to be less filtered honey for right. sure. And so you're going to get more of the natural pollens in it. And usually less filtered honey tends to come through smaller operations. Right. The bigger operations tend to have very high filtration right. of their honey. Okay. Um, so that's a good like test for your own visual knowing. If your honey never sets, if it's fireweed, it probably won't set. But other than fireweed, your honey should start to crystallize in some way or another. If it's not crystallizing um, at some point, along, you know, within a month or two, then you know you probably have either not honey in your honey jar or you have honey that's been heated too like much. pasteurized too yeah. too high too so high. and why is it pasteurized it, it makes filtration so much easier oh honey, it's not a, so it's not like pasteurizing fluid. It's it is like very hard to, it's very right. hard to filter and so yeah. and what if you pasteurize at too high a temperature for too long what do you lose uh, well, you lose all the good enzymes that are present in there and you also denature the honey. And my understanding is once you start to denature it, it, it actually can become slightly poisonous for humans mm -hmm. is, yeah, what what they say. Right. So they being, I'm not sure who. But <laughs> all right. The greater well, interweb. <laughs> I'm sure we could talk about honey and its intricacies all day. But so, Emily, has there been, since you came back around to beekeeping? Yeah. Have there been one or more times where you've come close to wanting to quit? Oh, no. You know what? I love it. I actually, I really love it. No, definitely not. It's really fun. Yeah. Every day is like, bees are just really fun to work with and look at. And I, I'm a, I love to puzzle and bees are like a puzzle mm -hmm. every day. Like putting together and taking apart colonies is like puzzling all day. And I just, I really enjoy it. It's really fun. And you can talk about the present time or imagine an ideal three years from now if you want, but like, is your commercial operation or can your commercial operation be profitable? Yeah. Oh, we are profitable. Yeah. And so it totally can be profitable for sure. And, um, yeah, we're profitable at this point and I think we can increase our profitability for sure with efficiency. And this is, so you're selling some honey and you're, you're doing your breeding that was, those are the two main sources of income for yeah, you. Yeah. And selling nukes. And are you trying to grow your scale or are you at the scale you want to be at? I always think I'm at the scale I want to be at. And then the next year, somehow I end up with more colonies. So I, I don't know how to answer that question. Mm -hmm. Are there any <laughs> limits to, to increasing scale? Just workers. Yeah. yeah. You just need a good workforce. And right now. You mean actual humans. Actual not, humans. Not worker bees. Well, you need good worker bees yeah. too. You need all the good workers. And so right now we're really fortunate to have amazing workers. And, um, and, and so, and we're so thankful for that. And if we can get a few more good workers, we could definitely uh, scale up quite a bit more for sure. So, um, I'm, I'm going to use, uh, uh, woo woo language, but like, what's, what's a moment in your work week or work month working with bees that like really makes your heart sing? You know, um, I, I, when we go out to catch Queens, 
it's like all things in beekeeping you never quite know or farming in general you never quite know what you're in for until you're out there harvesting and so when you go out to harvest queens or cat we call it catching queens so when you go out to catch queens and this year was an awesome year we had really high percentages so a lot of these virgins won't come back to their unit right they they will get eaten by birds or they will not find their way back home you know there's many reasons that they don't come back but when you go out to catch queens and you get like 90 percent return rate and they're all these beautiful fat big queens it just feels like it's really rewarding you're like wow you know this is working we're getting it it's going so that's definitely a, a i always that always puts a smile on my just face. delights you i mean it, both that little anecdote and the one about going back up to retrieve your hives that have been up in the in the forest in the mountains for fireweed yeah. harvesting they both have like a real like you know unveiling treasure discovery aspect to them they you know do what i mean yeah like, you get around the corner way way out where your hives are and you see it's intact a bear hasn't messed with it you yeah know, whatever and you know that it's very likely just laden with honey and everything else that's cool. oh when and you then... crack that first box and and the honey just drips from top the top box down to the next box you're like oh, this is yeah. awesome we've done it and then, <laughs> or, or the bees have done it really and then same with confirm when you get to confirm that you've got health a healthy queen going yeah it's cool yeah. And it's the same thing in the spring. You know, you haven't seen your colonies all winter. It, it, oh, it is like an adventure. I've never thought of it like that. But it is like this, yeah, like treasure hunter adventure. You open up your colonies in the spring and you're like, oh, my gosh, they're all alive. How exciting or, you know, or not, you know, that can go the other way, too. What, what's a what's a real dominant conversation among you and your colleagues right now, like in terms of like discourse within within beekeeping? I think there's two pretty big themes that seem to be going on. One is this whole border issue. It's there's a real there is a large portion of beekeepers who want to open the Canadian border to foreign imports and there is a large portion of beekeepers who do not want to and it's getting kind of ugly. Um so that is definitely a really big conversation that's happening within the beekeeping world is do we let more foreign bees in or not? And and then as well, it's varroa control. How this mite that predates on the bees and kills them? Just how, what treatment is working? What treatment isn't working? How are you treating? When are you treating? You know, that is the main conversations that we have all the time. Those are the two two big pieces. Is it true that sometime this summer? You went and stood in front of a tractor that was spraying herbicides, like you just went and walked up to it? I did. It was probably not a good idea, but I did. This was a neighbor? <laughs> this was a neighbor. What was happening? So we have a cornfield next to us, of like 28 acres of corn next to us. And we have only been on this farm for five years now. But for the past four years, I've gone over and talked to the farmer there about the situation. And I understand he's got to spray, you know, or he feels as though he has to spray. Um, this is weed control. Weed control, Spr Roundup. Spraying, it's it's yeah. a Roundup. This year it wasn't Roundup. It was some slight variation of Roundup, but essentially he said it's Roundup, but he said it's a slightly different because I think they couldn't source Roundup this year, actually. Yeah. I think it was really sparse. So they're, they spray it, and, and they spray it sometime in June, which is like our peak queen rearing time. And the way our property is set up, it's most beneficial for us to have our bees kind of near their field, which is really unfortunate. And so I've just talked to them about, you know, if we can work together, they could just spray maybe in the evening or at night or early morning, but just like not middle of the day on a hot, sunny day would be great. 
And they always say that that's possible, but then it doesn't seem to be possible the next year. And so um, anyways, so this year I was happened to be out in the builder yard, which is where we make all these queen cells. And I saw the tractor spraying and I just was like, I lost my mind. And so I beelined it across our field over into their field and just like stood. I actually thought he might run me over for a second, but he didn't. He did stop. And uh, and yeah, I just had a had you know, a conversation with him about, again, the the impacts this has on our farm and, um, yeah, and just how detrimental it is to the bees. And did he receive that okay? So he is just, you know, a pawn in a bigger farm. It's a huge dairy farm yeah. that manages that one of many, many fields around here. And so, you know, he says, well, it's up to my boss. So I called his boss and I never got a reply back. But but I have since talked to the landowner that the land is leased from and he is open to transferring it into an organic alfalfa field. So hopefully I'm going to work with a local um, uh, meat producer here in Armstrong and transition it to be an organic alfalfa field in the future. Emily, we're almost done. I did want to ask you about the subject of organic agriculture. And like my sense is that it's a really sticky issue or challenging thing for honey to be be organic because bees roam. And how do you control for what they're feeding on? And how does that impact orga- what organic has to say about the, the forage and what's being done to it vis-a-vis herbicides, pesticides, etc. Things that are not permitted within other forms of organic agriculture. So is there anything to talk about with regards to organic beekeeping and what that means and what it could mean or any 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 thoughts you have on it well i definitely think you know your the varroa mite treatments can be organic or not organic for sure that is definitely a discussion that can that is there you know there are treatments that are organic and there are treatments that are non-organic for sure a feed for bees you know we feed them sugar syrup uh to stimulate them for growth in the spring and to just make sure they have enough winter stores and you can't feed organic it has to be white sucrose sugar or that actually the bees can't digest organic uh like non-white rogers sugar Mm -hmm. essentially will not be digested by the bees so um it gives them dysentery so you can't have organic sugar going into the bees so that is you know if you and and i would say that on a scaled operation you can't run it without you stimulating some sort of sugar syrup feeding. And so um, that would inevitably be a part of it. And then I think that for the foraging, there is an argument to be said, you might be able to, especially in certain parts of Canada, be able to, you know, say that you're have organic honey, but you couldn't produce that on a scale that would be, you know, viable for a larger market. Um, In my opinion, although there are beekeepers in Alberta who I think it's a 10 kilometer radius. It has to be with no organic, uh, conventional. yeah, no conventional, sorry, no yeah. conventional agriculture happening. So, um, you know, there is, I think there is room to, to talk about it for sure. And there is possibilities for it within the like Okanagan Valley. I think it would be impossible right. to say that you're organic. Yeah. And then I guess like as a beekeeper getting away from certified organic, it's just yeah. like, Except for these special circumstances, I mean, you're especially if you're producing honey and trying to profit from it, you're you need your bees near intensive agriculture. You're just accepting the chemicals like the pesticides and herbicides and fungicides maybe that can can harm them as just just a cost of doing business. Like like you kind of have to view it that way because what other choice do you have? Yeah, 
I mean, it, that, is, that is sort of true. I mean, the choice that we make is we try and locate all of our hives on organic farms because we find that this, like, large monocultures is really not um, conducive to good bees, bee health at all. And so, you know, um, we have bees up on Wild Flight Farm and on Fresh Valley Farm, which are both big organic farms that are doing a lot of... Um, planting of these amazingly diverse cover crops. And actually, Purple Springs, a big nursery here, has just transitioned from being very um, roundup heavy to going into regenerative agriculture and are doing these amazing cover crops. And our bee site near there has transitioned. We have watched the bee health completely change over time with these changing practices around the bees and the land use. Do you mean do you mean strictly mortality rates or more than that? What no, I mean more than mortality rates, like the overall health of the colony. So mm. how much pollen is in the colony, how much honey is in the colony. Bees have a healthy look when the colony is healthy. Mm. And they have this like they're fuzzy and bright and vibrant and they just look um the colony just has this amazing look to it when it's a healthy colony. And those colonies have totally transitioned and it's amazing to watch it happen, especially the ones near Purple Springs. It's been mind blowing to see the change. So I think as beekeepers, you know, we do need to be really careful of our site selection. I do think it is really helpful to be either on wild, like edge onto wildlands, which is what we either try and do, or at least make the core flying zone a fairly organic zone if we can. It seems to help, in my opinion. Emily Huckster, Thank you so much for making the time to tell us all about this. Thank you so much. I have really appreciated the, the, the time and space to share what we do. So many thanks. Hey, it's Jordan from the introduction to this episode and also this episode. I hope you liked that conversation with Emily, and I hope you'll come back to hear more long-form conversations with people from BC's agriculture sector. If you have suggestions for future guests of the show, I'm all ears. Podcast at farminginbc.ca. Finally, if you're a farmer in British Columbia, remember, we have a lot more in common than all our differences would suggest. Okay, talk to you next time.